Welcome to the Schools Out podcast with Mike and Miles. Longtime educators Mike Ditzenberger and Miles O'Shea discuss educational issues to provoke thought and encourage solutions. The potential of public education is limitless. We must work together to overcome obstacles to realize that potential and create new structures that work for everyone. The system is broken. Everyone deserves better. We can get there together. School is out. Now let's get started. Hey, Miles. Hey, Mike. How's it going? Great. So I think we're talking today about what makes an amazing lesson. Maybe share some experiences on awesome lessons and awesome ways to create amazing lessons, and then we'll go from there. I know our our pregame for this conversation was pretty intense, so we've got a lot to pick from. So Yeah, I'm excited, and I think that we'll, in the same time, also be able to talk about not just the lessons, but what the teacher brings to those lessons, which will be really cool. Yeah, I think that's the whole idea behind it. It's, it's, the lesson itself is nothing without the teacher. And, uh, you know, what, what does a teacher have to put into an amazing lesson to, to make it that way? It's more than just a textbook. It's more than just a worksheet. So it's definitely the, the personality that comes into play. All right, I'm excited. Let's get into it. So just for the lighter side of things, Miles, do you have a do you have a lesson in mind that was just absolutely amazing? One that you couldn't wait to teach. Um, if you had to pick one out of the suitcase of a whole bunch that you ever did, can can you think of one that you just loved? Hmm. Uh, I've thought about this since you brought it up last week, and there are some lessons over the course of my teaching career that I just really loved and got into. I think the lessons that I enjoy doing most often allowed students to create and do at the same time, gave ownership to the students. And there is one lesson that I probably taught 10 or 15 times over the course of being a language arts teacher that I just loved. And it went something like this. And I actually taught it for the first time as a student teacher, which is weird because I just kept refining it and teaching it. But the idea was, as a language arts teacher, to teach the concept of characterization. And I would bring in items from home or from wherever, just some crazy items, like a cowboy hat or a suitcase or a golf club or whatever, say like five or six items, and I would bring those in. And I would tell the class genuinely that they were from a visitor, and I just make up different stuff every time. My uncle or my grandpa or my, you know, great aunt or some crazy guy off the street, they came and left these things behind, and it was their job to discover who brought the items, and then each group would have one of those items, and based on that item, they would have to write a character profile based on that person, and then over the course of the lesson, we would create an entire fictional character. The students didn't realize that they were doing this at the time, but they would create an entire fictional character based on the individual artifacts, which is exactly how authors do characterization when they write a novel. They use different pieces of information to build this person, and we would always create these like awesome, cool, funny characters, and they thought they were describing you know, my uncle or my grandpa or whatever, and then they would draw the person, and we would create that character, and then sometimes as that lesson uh, proceeded, we would then um, develop stories around that character, and it was just really cool, and a way for the students to 
do, and a lot of times you hear me talk about like hands-on experiential, mm-hmm. like hands-on. Let's not memorize the five ways that authors create characters. Let's create a character right. through these things. And that's just one lesson that I thought of when you first said that. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> that's kind of funny. I mean, you, you've got kids doing what what's what they want to do, and they're 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 not learning the rules and learning just memorization things. They're getting out there and doing it. That's great. Um, I guess if I were to share one, it, it wouldn't necessarily be a concept lesson, but I always I always recreated the wheel and, and did some weird things. But activities that I did within classes, I would reuse every now and again. And the one that always comes to mind, and I've shared it with my staff before, is I used to do this thing called Fake Family Feud. And uh, I, I'd have this, this scooter cart. It was like an AV cart from the 80s or whatnot. And I would set that in the front of the classroom. And I would, I would tell them, be like, okay, so this is the, the front. Maybe we would even, like, prep watching, like, a little clip of, of Family Feud, or I would describe the show as best I could because we didn't really have YouTube back then when I started this. But I'd set a card up in the front of the room, and, and I'd say... You taught, you taught before the days of the YouTube? Yeah, I taught. You must be pretty old. I'm pretty old, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I'd call two kids up, and they'd, I'd give them a question. I'd be like, we surveyed 100 people all over the world, and, you know, I'd ask them a question. Then they'd have to, like, slap a button that did not exist. There was no button on the cart. And then I would make up who, who I thought got the button first. And the one kid would look at me like, I, I clearly hit the cart first. I'm like, well, no, the other person hit the button before you got to it, you know. And it was just a, it was a riot. People were like, what is this? What is going on, you know? And so uh, I would give them the question, and then I would I would say, okay, well, let's let's see. And I would do it just like the game show. And I'd say, survey says, and I would point to the ceiling on the on a wall, like near the ceiling on a wall. There was no board. There was nothing there. And then I would make my own sound effects and be like, bing, number three answer, close, close. <laughs> and then I would go to the next person and they'd be like, so, so now I have to go, right? I'm like, yeah, yeah, you got to see if you can get better than the number three answer. And they would, they would try and answer the same question. I'd be like, survey says, bing, number two answer. Do you want to play or do you want to pass? I would create this whole fake scenario. And the, the thing was, was every kid that I know, they would look at the wall like there was a board there. And they'd be like waiting for that, that little thing to flip over and show the answer. But it wasn't there. And it was a quick activity. It only took like 10 or 15 minutes because once that was done, once the kids were like done with it, they were like, okay, this is kind of funny. And we were talking about the concepts. Of course, I taught Spanish at the time. So we would, we would do those things, but it was very entertaining for the kids. It was very entertaining for me, and we would we would just go back and forth, and then kids would argue about like, no, we got that, and be like, ah, no, you didn't, you know. And it was it was hilarious, and everybody was bought into it. So it was kind of a powerful activity that we did, and that was just one of of gosh, so many. And I would say, in listening to that, that is part of your uh, teaching toolbox. Yes, like you can always reach in. And pull that out and do it with whatever concept you were teaching or whatever to have some fun and to also assess where the students were and all those types of things. And when I was talking to some young teachers that I'm working with just recently, I was talking about your teacher toolbox. And over time, as you experience teaching and as you um, do what I would call just little micro tests all the time in the classroom, you add those into your toolbox. You can always pull them out. You can always read your audience and know what your class needs and it might not be in your plan for that day right but depending on how something is happening you have that to go to when you need it right 
Right, and I'd say even early on, that toolbox included so many different things, and it wasn't limited to just activities or lessons. I mean, you could throw in assessments, you could throw in so many different things. I, I can remember from the earliest days walking around thinking, I mean, when I was young, young as a teacher and, and doing things the way I thought they should have been done, you know, you teach a lesson, you teach a couple lessons throughout the week, you give a quiz at the end of the week. But I remember when, when kids would sit down and take my quizzes, I'd walk around and and I'd be talking to kids while they're taking quizzes and other kids would be like, hey, can, can you keep it down? I'm like, oh, my bad, my bad. <laughs> you know, like, I'm sorry I'm having a conversation over here while you're taking a quiz. But meanwhile, I was having a conversation with a kid who was taking a quiz and he, he couldn't, he would get caught up on like number three or whatever number it was. I'd be like, you know that. I, I've heard you say that before. And he'd be like, yeah, but I can't think of it. I can't get it right here. And I'd be like, circle that and put like put like a star beside that so that I know that you know that, but you can't put it on paper. And I'd give him credit for it anyway because I know I heard him say it. Or I knew at one point in time he knew the answer to that question. He just was locking up right then and there. And that was the conversations I'd have with all kind of kids. They'd be like, you're giving me an answer that I can't put? You already got the answer. I knew it. So those little things went into my toolbox as well, just how to interact with kids to, to garnish that, that relationship with them. And it wasn't that I was, I was faking it or, or doing, doing wrong by kids by giving them answers or quote-unquote whatever you might call it. I already knew they knew it. They couldn't produce it on, with a pencil on a piece of paper on a Friday at 2 in the afternoon. That's all. Right. And I had the actual pleasure of teaching just down the hall from you for a time in my teaching career. And I can tell you, based on something I observed, and I want you maybe to talk about this as we're thinking about lessons or how you structure a class for students best to learn. I would watch students going into your room happy. I would watch them coming out of your room happy. I would watch you in the hallway or in your room laughing, joking, being happy, trying to promote what I would just say is fun yeah. in your classroom. Yeah, it was definitely fun. There was a lot of learning involved, but it was definitely fun. And I guess that's that's when I realized what was going on, I look back at it as that was definitely my shtick, if you will. It was my pitch. It was it was that I was selling something to kids, but it was very important that they all bought it. Um it wasn't just like I'm presenting something and if you take from it or don't take from it, I don't care. Come in, you get what I deliver or you don't, and then you leave. There was none of that. It was, we're going to do this together. I want you to learn this and I want you to want to learn this. Mm-hmm. And that is how I approached every single day that I taught at school. Right. Uh, and I'm not saying, I don't think in this conversation we are saying that we're like the world's greatest teachers or that everyone has to do it exactly the way that we did it. But I know from the earliest days um, of my own experience going into a classroom, and this is no insult to the the teachers that I had as a learner, I wanted my class to be different. I didn't know as a young teacher exactly what that was going to look like, but I know or I knew that I didn't necessarily enjoy most of my educational experiences. And that's really one of the reasons why I wanted to become a teacher in the first place. I felt deep down that it could be different than what I experienced. And I just wanted my classroom to be different. I wanted students to enjoy being there. I wanted them to have fun and also to learn. And that's one of the first things I would say on the first day of class to every class that I taught. I have two goals for you. I want you to have fun 
and I want you to take meaningful things away from this class that you're going to use the rest of your life in that order. Because if it's not in that order, according to the way that I see the world, we're not going to do anything that we need to do. You have to enjoy being here. And then once you enjoy being here, I can teach you a whole lot of cool stuff. And that was my focus. And we've talked about this um, off of the podcast quite a bit as teaching or the classroom experience kind of as performance or as giving kids what they need in order to be happy first in the class. Mm-hmm. And I would tell I would tell kids all the time, if I have you third period and we get to second period and you're sitting there saying, oh, I've got to go to Mr. O'Shea's class next period. I hate that class. Right. I have failed you. I have failed you right away. Please come to me and say, I hate your class. Mm-hmm. And I'll find you somewhere else to be because I'm not doing what I need to do for you. Or I'll change whatever I'm doing to make you enjoy that. And people might listen to this and say something like, oh, you can't change your class just to make someone enjoy it. Well, why not? Why can't you? Because they have to enjoy being in the room, being with you first in the content, whatever you're teaching. Mm -hmm. You have to show them the joy in that. Right. Like no one created English or language arts to make people hate their lives. Right. They didn't, you know? Yeah. And whoever wrote, you know, uh, Charles Dickens didn't write Great Expectations to make people hate their lives. I, I hope he didn't. I mean, right. the way it was taught to me, I hated my life while I was <laughs> learning that. Yeah. But that, I don't think that's why he wrote that. There's this whole world out there that we're able to teach kids, yeah. and it's enjoyable and fun and that's what we need to bring. So when you talk about like what makes a great lesson, I think that's what makes a great lesson. I think so Just too. being able to like have fun and enjoy whatever you're teaching. I think a lot of people listening to this too um, are going to realize maybe some of the things that we say, but some people aren't. I've talked to a lot of people that listen to our podcasts that are like, I'm not a teacher, but I really enjoy listening to this. But think about this. You know, you've, you've got teachers that you remember from school that you love and you have teachers that that maybe not so much but you think back on those ones that you love and the experiences that they offered you like I've had so many kids say to me Mr. D I remember your class it was so much fun I don't remember anything from Spanish I'm sorry the only thing I remember and I always stop them be like get ready to pay me a dollar you remember how to say hola right and like <laughs> yeah yeah but your class was awesome but that's not that's not just particular to me because it was the way I taught the class. It wasn't particular to the subject. That's kind of how school goes. You know, you, you might remember the experience and not necessarily the content. I can't remember the content of every single class I ever took. I, I can't even remember the content from my favorite class that I took, which, I, which was always home economics. Um, one of the best teachers I ever had, she cared for me. I knew she was there for me in a way that... That's, that so many weren't, but, you know, I remembered the love that she gave me, and I tried to duplicate that every single day with kids. Um, and if you were walking by my classroom, and it was and it was a little bit nutty sometimes, or we were having fun, and kids were walking in smiling and leaving smiling, some of our listeners might think, well, that guy was just, you know, having fun, didn't really care. No, it's quite the opposite. You know, those lessons had intense amounts of planning. It was well choreographed. Everything that I said was planned, um, almost too much so. I mean, I, I probably overplanned every single lesson. I never used lesson plans over again because I, it's just not the way I was. Um, you know, like even when I had to turn in lesson plans, when the principal would be like, Mike, are you going to turn in lesson plans? Yeah, I, I always did them on a legal pad. I had all my lesson plans on legal pads, and then I took them from a legal pad 
and put them on three by five cards the morning that I was going to deliver these lessons. Well, no, yeah, I don't want your legal pad. You you need to use the lesson plan format. Oh, okay, I'll use the lesson plan format and I'll type them up really quick so that they're what you want. So I'm going to double entry everything. <coughs> but no, there was intense amount of planning for every single lesson and then it was the show. How am I going to deliver this lesson in an impactful way so the kids want to be a part of that? It's just, it was important to me. <laughs> Another thing that I would say, if you're asking the question about great lessons or what makes a great lesson or a great classroom experience for me, I keep thinking of the word authentic. And I would recommend anyone dealing with school-age children to try to make as many of the lessons that they're teaching or their experiences that they're giving as authentic as possible. And what I would say by the definition of the term authentic, real-world application, not just I'm showing you how you might use this someday, but we're using it today. Mm -hmm. Whatever you're teaching someone, don't just have it end with a selected response test or don't just have it end with an essay or whatever. Make the final product, make the end goal real. Mm -hmm. You were telling me about uh, a teacher that you saw that was doing some awesome things with creating a school song or something like that. How cool of an opportunity is that to just engage a whole class in, hey, we're going to do this project. Think about all the skills, abilities, knowledge that goes into, and I don't even remember the specific thing, but just as an example, we're going to create a song about our school. Think about all the different content areas that you're pulling in or all the different experiences and lessons as opposed to, you know, we're going to learn, um, I don't even know, like specific music knowledge because I'm musically like illiterate, yeah. but we're going to learn like the specific notes or a minor, like we're going to drill that. No, we're going to create a song. Yeah. And then in that process, yeah, you're going to learn all those things. And that's what I would say. Like if you can just put out the authentic project first, this is our goal, this is what we're going to do and create and then build up to it. To me, that's that's how you get awesome lessons, no matter what. Right, and I, I gotta give a shout out to Mr. Bazlack, who's probably gonna listen to this. He's, he taught sixth grade. I wanna take that, what you just said, and apply it to kind of what I said too. Mr. Bazlack is musically inclined, and he told his class, I'm willing to do this with you because I think it's important and you're gonna love it. But there was so much planning that went into that. Mr. Bazlack wrote the framework for a song for his class, told him that you're going to make a song and it's basically like a final exam for a sixth, for the entire sixth grade. They had to pull into that song everything that they could think of that they learned that year. Things that were impactful to them. Things that stood out with their learning across all subjects. Very special things that just that class shared. Inside jokes. Inside things that they did. They put that into that song. They created the song. He published the song for them. They made a yearbook as well to go along with it. It's like that was an intense amount of planning on his part and an intense amount of preparation on their part, but they still talk about it. It's something they'll never, ever forget, and he won't either. It was incredible to watch, to, to see it go on, and what an amazing experience for the kids. And that's super cool, and as you were saying that, I have not personally taught this lesson, but I um, did some research on it, and it's something that I would love to see a school do. So if you're listening to this and want to start, get to work, or if I can help create this in my school, I would love to do it. But a class, a social studies class, say it was a seventh grade social studies class, they wrote a seventh grade social studies book for other seventh graders. 
So they did that throughout the year. So from day one through day 180, they weren't learning, you know, we're going to learn this lesson, take this test. No, their purpose was we're going to create an original student-generated textbook mm-hmm. for other seventh graders about seventh grade social studies topics. Yes. That was the final product. Everything, they had to learn how to write and how to do the pictures and the, all of that. They made the book. That's awesome. You could do that in every class. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. I mean, the the work that goes into that, imagine how many areas you're going to cross to do that. You've got publishing, you've got research, you've got animated drawing, you've got so much going into that, and it's just a rich experience for all the kids. And it's beyond, okay, I'm going to present this lesson to you, who's going to read next, who's going to read next, let's answer the questions that come along at the end and maybe draw a picture. And I'm not saying that every lesson does that, but I mean, if you if you were to frame up a lot of resource material that's kind of what it looks like i mean if you follow a resource and i i I say a resource not a curriculum if you follow a resource as it's intended to be delivered that's that's pretty much what it is we're going to read a little bit i'm going to present a little bit to you maybe you'll read a little bit and we'll answer some questions we'll watch a video like there's it's very kind of canned up right so I think we should probably explore the, the differences between resources and curriculum and how they often get confused, but I don't know. Yeah, we can definitely you know, do that, and I think that's probably part of this. I wanted to mention something, and I've never told you this before, so you can just bear with me. All right. um, one of the, I think, the coolest places I got to as a teacher was I had uh, a class that were um, 12th grade students. And those kids in 12th grade, I would have had when they were sophomores and juniors also. But I had them in 12th grade for a whole year in a video production class. And for a while, and the way that I got to teach this class was just basically I volunteered to teach it. Not that I was like a qualified video production expert or something like that. But I would like try to facilitate projects and do cool stuff with them. And you... Uh, had become the building principal of that school and you came to me and said you know miles i'd like to like do some stuff where i can be in some videos or like start to have a little bit of a, a school show or whatever and you probably knew what you were doing at the time because you were uh thinking ahead and things like that but that gave me just that and i had been like toying around with different ideas but just that the building principal for the first time in my educational career acknowledging that I was even teaching classes in the school (laughs) (laughs) saying hey I'd like you to do this or explore this or you didn't say like this is how it has to be or this is what I want or this is what you need to do you said I kind of have this idea what do you think can you go with that or like and from that I created um a or my students created I would say I facilitated a weekly show that was about 10 minutes in length where students have a lot of creativity and a lot of options but we started to make a weekly show from that and by the time that got like two or three or four years down the road and I don't even think that you were in the building at the point where I felt like really good about that because it took a while to get there students were creating that basically on their own within certain guidelines and they were taking the guidelines that I had given them they took full ownership of it. They were highlighting things in the school sometimes. They were doing funny, cool, creative things sometimes. But they were making this student-generated weekly show. And when I could 
help to facilitate that and just see those students care about it, mm-hmm. not for a grade because they were not doing it for a grade or come in during other periods. And, you know, Mr. O'Shea, we got to get this part done. Can we come in? Do it? Yeah, you can, guys can do that. Can we stay after? Yeah, you can do that. That's when I finally got to the point where I was like, in this classroom, I've gotten to where I want a class to get to. Right. So now kids are doing it for the sake of learning and for the sake of doing it to get it done and producing a good product instead of for the sake of I need this to graduate or I need this for some other thing, so I'm going to do it to meet that bare minimum requirement. They were doing it to make it the best they could, which is amazing. That's exactly where I think if, if you're a teacher out there and you're listening to this, that's where you want to be. You want kids to take ownership of their learning, have an active part in it, and want to come back tomorrow. And that, that is, it takes a lot of work to do that. I mean, if you're a teacher and you're trying to do that, you're putting as much planning into a lesson or double the amount of planning to, than, it, than it takes to deliver it. Right. And that's one of the things with like, and I would call that a project-based experiential approach that people don't necessarily realize. And I have found from being a, a building level administrator now, I'm so surprised at the reluctance or I don't want to use the word fear, but the reluctance that people have to do like group based mm-hmm. or project based instruction because they're uncomfortable with it for whatever reason. You need to realize that most of the planning and preparation is at the front end of that. It takes an intense amount of planning and preparation to get that project or experience set, to get the guidelines established that you want and then to get kids on board with learning in that way. And I feel like that's probably why a lot of times people back out of those things before they can get fully down the road because it looks so messy in the beginning and they've never done it. And they're like, oh, my gosh, yeah, this isn't like looking how I feel like it should right. look or the students aren't doing what they're not sitting and being quiet and they just scrap the whole thing. Or they haven't done that planning and preparation that needs to take place in the front end of it. And I, I think if you're a teacher listening to this saying, you know what, I've wanted to do project-based learning, I, I will tell you, you, you need to fail a few times and be willing to fail and have that conversation with students openly and safely because let's, let me take you back to the beginning of my teaching, and it might be the same for you. You have an idea for a project, you're, you're going to put the kids out there, and you think you've planned enough for it, and you, you're going to turn the kids loose and say, you're going to give them a time limit to get something done. Well, one, you don't, you might not know how long it's going to take them to get done. So you're like, okay, well, you have two days. As soon as you release kids for two days on a project and you don't know exactly how long it's going to take them, I guarantee you it's going to take them two days. So right. if, if you didn't plan for them to carefully have checkpoints along the way during a project, you're, you're going to learn something very quickly. You're going to learn through failure that releasing kids and just saying, I have this cool project, let's just, let's go do it. You have two days to get it done. That's not going to, that's not going to turn out the way you thought it would because the love, the amount of planning that you have to do to guide kids through that and to be a part of that, it's intense. So maybe we can talk a little bit about, and this might not have been the intention of this episode, but talk a little bit about best practices for experiential or project-based approaches. That's something I'm really passionate about. And also sad that I don't see happening in either my own building or other areas of education. Mm -hmm. Um, Just best practices. So when I talk with other teachers about this or what they need to do, the first thing is thinking about students working in groups. Because if you're going to have project-based 
things going on. Most often you're going to have kids working in groups. That concept right there puts people in an uncomfortable zone for some reason. And the first things they say are, well, there's going to be some students that do all the work and some students who don't. And they're fearful of that. So I would say the first best practice is establishing your groups. And I would, as you're starting something like this, always recommend teachers building the groups first. Yes. Purposefully building the groups for each project. If you allow students to group themselves, you're going to get some things that you don't want. Don't need to go into all those things. But then the the structure of the group, teaching people how to work in groups is essential. Mm-hmm. Think about adults who try to work together. Right. They often fail. And why do they fail? They don't have the right structure. They don't know how to work with, the, with other people. Mm-hmm. It's really, really difficult. So the first thing within a group, you teach people that every group has hogs, people who want to take all the work, and that's damaging to the group. And every group has logs, people who just want to sit on the sidelines and do nothing, and that's just as damaging to the group. And everyone's going to have an equal role within this group. We're going to establish those roles. And then at the end of this project, everyone within the group is going to evaluate everyone else's performance. Right. So give them assessment. How did your other three group members do? What did they contribute along the way? Because as a teacher, you're not going to be a part of every single group at all times. Right. The kids are. Right. Adults are part of their own groups, and they know what the, you know, so the same way I know as a a person in that group, oh, the three other people that I'm working with, at the end of this, part of my grade is going to be based on what they think of what I do. Sure it is. And, and. Like you said, assigning roles within that group is essential. What are you going to present? Oh, yes, present as part of your learning to this project. You're going to have to present to me, to somebody else, because if you, if part of your role is to say, okay, just get this done, you're going to have the hogs and logs. You're definitely going to have that. And And you're going to see a project that looks just like her project because she does all the work and you knew what it was going to be anyway. Well, everybody, she may, she may not have let anybody do any other part because she wants it to be a certain way. And everybody else was saying, well, she's just going to do it her way. But if everybody has a role and they have to present what they did within that role, you're going to get something much more amazing. You're going to have something that looks like four or five or whatever people worked toward that. Um, and again, even as a teacher, you're going to fail at this. This is nothing that you can be successful at the first time. You're going to learn and, and tweak that. And, and it, again, you're, you're going to find out you're not going to turn kids loose without regular check-ins. You're right. going to have to check for understanding frequently along the way. Right. And I think that's where people get lost also. I see teachers, you know, like you said, they, they assign, this is going to take us five, five days. Yeah. And then they get to the end of that five days, and some people are finished and some people aren't. On those five days, maybe instead of just saying you have to be finished at day five, you at day, the end of day one, this is our benchmark. Yes. This is our checkpoint. This is what you all have completed. And everyone in that class in those groups will meet that benchmark because it's part of the assessment. It's part of their score. It's required. If you just turn people loose, yeah. you're going to get all different results. Exactly. And I think that's key. What you, you know, those benchmarks are super, super important. Right. And it, you know, you're going to structure, even if you're not doing a project-based lesson, you're going to structure your class the same way. 
you if you sit back and if you're delivering a 40 minute lesson or a half hour lesson or whatever lesson you're going to do if you sit back and say okay here's the quiz and you take the quiz grades as they are and then move on to the next topic you're you're also kind of in a way failing you're you're not doing what you need to do because it wasn't okay it's not okay that you give the quiz and expect the results that you got. If you knew what the results were before you were given the quiz, why give the quiz at all? I'm given the quiz, but unfortunately, I know two of you aren't going to do so well on it, and you know the bulk of you are going to do okay on it, and two of you are you knew the material before I even talked about it. Well, hold on a second. You've got information going into the lesson. You already knew what the results were going to be. That should change your approach. I mean, just like a project, you can't just turn kids loose for five days, just like you can't turn them loose on a lesson. Okay, I, I know you two are going to fail, but I'm going to let it happen with this quiz. No. Right. No. The one thing you talk to me about is the structure that you think should take place in more of a, I'm not talking now about a project-based format, but it could be any type of instruction that takes place within a period of time um, with an amount of direct instruction and then opportunities for um, small group breakout or teacher reteaching within that. But I want you to be able to talk about that because I think it's super cool, the concept that you have. But think about the idea of, okay, I'm a math teacher. I'm going to teach unit one for a month, and then I'm going to give the test and see how everyone did. Yes. That's traditional approach. Yes. Maybe I'll have a quiz at week two and see how people did on the first part, and then I'm going to give a test and the first, oh, and I can see that, you know, like you said, these four people did really well and these, you know, you got my bell curve or whatever. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't do that, I don't think, with best practices. No. So if you wouldn't do that within a month of math teaching without giving very purposeful formative assessments in there, you wouldn't do that or you shouldn't do that within a 40-minute class period or an 80-minute class period. The same way, I'm not going to get to the end of this 40-minute lesson and just say some people got it, some people didn't, some won, some lost. Right. I'm going to teach in very structured, very purposeful blocks of time that I've pre-planned out, and I'm going to have formative checks within that 40-minute time and give opportunities for intervention or reteaching or different learning styles or whatever. Right. So... I guess if, I, if I'm going to talk about this, let me, let me tell you what goes into a lesson like that. One, careful planning. And, and maybe if you went to university or if, if you've ever planned to teach anybody anything, you have to anticipate how they're going to react to what you're teaching them. So in, in, in university, they taught us to script our lesson plans. And I could never understand why they did that until I started becoming decent at planning lessons. You have to be able to anticipate all the faces who are in front of you for every lesson, what their reaction to your voice is going to be, what their reaction to the delivery is going to be. Without that, you're not ready. You're not ready to deliver. So understanding that, you've got, maybe I have a, a half hour or 45 minutes to deliver a lesson. That's the time allotment given to me. In my world, I'm not going to speak for more than 10 or 15 minutes. That's all you get of me because after that, you're tired of looking at my pretty face and the tone of my voice. So I'm going to shut up after 10. How many minutes, minutes did you say? 10 to 15. 10 to 15, okay. 15 maximum. 10 is about ideal for me because let, let's be honest. You're not probably not going to listen to me beyond five minutes. 
But I'll and give what's you happening time. after that five or ten minutes in any classroom? In any classroom after ten minutes, it's you're going to go and cheat with a with a partner. Uh, yep, that's right. I said cheat. I've got something for you to do, and if you're having trouble doing it, look off that kid's paper, or ask that kid some questions, or you know, turn and work with the people around you. That's the idea. We need, we're going to do this together. And you made mention of this. I think it was on our first podcast episode. True learning is a social event. Oh, I'm going to put that in my classroom. After another 10 minutes of working with somebody to understand how they understood it or to maybe show somebody else how I understood it, individually among all of my classmates, we might mix that pot up a whole bunch of times in that 10 minutes. Guess what? In that last 10 minutes to 15 minutes, I want you to think of how you're going to show somebody else how to do exactly what I taught you to do on your own. Now it's your job to show somebody else how to do it. Every lesson that I tried to teach was geared around that, and I didn't want to leave anybody out. It was important that every single kid have some takeaway from that lesson that they could show or tell somebody about. Even if it wasn't the full concept or the full skill, they had something that they could explain to somebody else. That was vital. Nobody got out escaping that part of it. You need to be able to tell me something. Tell me how to do something in Spanish. Tell me one word that you didn't know before this lesson based on everything that we did. So let's say I'm listening to this and let's say I say, you know, Mike, that sounds good. I'm a math teacher. I teach, well, I teach sixth grade math. I, when I'm trying to teach a lesson, half my class is not going to have it within that 10 minutes. I know they're not. I, that's why I spend 20 or 30 minutes of the direct instruction time because there's a lot of kids in my class, their skills are low, they're not getting it. I need to spend a lot more time on my lesson. Mm-hmm. Hey, guess what I'm doing after that initial 10 minutes? I'm doing it all over again because that's the thing that I left out, Miles. And it, it almost sounds like I'm selling you something right now. <laughs> hey, Miles, guess what else I'm doing? Um, in, the, in the next 10 minutes, me as a teacher, I'm going around and I'm checking in with kids as they're working together. And you know what? I might have a group of kids that I already anticipated were struggling with the lesson. I might pull them off to the side together and teach the same thing to them again. Or maybe do a mini lesson from the first lesson that I did. But I can guarantee you in that third, that that release time where I release them to themselves to think about how they're going to explain to somebody else, I guarantee you I'm pulling a group right then and there back towards me and I'm going to re-go over systematically what I was trying to teach them the first time. They don't get to leave without knowing something. And at that point, they can explain to me right then and there how they understand it. So yes, I'm pulling small groups as that day goes on or as that lesson goes on. The first 10 minutes is me. The second 10 minutes is all of you. The third 10 minutes is just you. And Dr. Archer, Anita Archer, she she calls that release time the the I do, we do, you do. Right, right. And, And it's... It's it's foundational. I mean, it's it's good teaching is what... And it sounds so simple when yeah. you say, I do, we do, you do, and that has been around for a long time. Unfortunately, I don't see that all the time in the classrooms that I observe or the classrooms that I read about. For some reason, it's still, when you look at classes in the United States, it's teacher focus, direct instruction, and then students individually doing things on a large scale. Right. For some reason, we still have a, a hard time breaking out of that 
traditional model. Especially when we start, and again, I'm going to get on a soapbox a little bit here, especially when we start being exclusive with our courses. When Whenever you start to see like advanced courses in high school or accelerated courses in high school or AP courses in high school, I start to notice that those at those levels, the instruction really loses that model almost immediately where it's it's more about I'm talking as a teacher and you're going to reproduce as a student or I'm going to get you part of the way and you're going to study, study, study the rest of the way. And it's very teacher driven and it's it's not so much collaborative work. I'm not saying that in every scenario, but when you get when you start to feel exclusive, you start to exclude. And, and the idea of, well, this is how it has to be. This is what it's like in college. Well, not the college classes that I want to pay for. <laughs> right. And I was just going to say that if you talk with those teachers and ask them, why are you teaching this way? Most likely what they're going to say is. I need to get them ready for college because this is how they teach in college. We know that's not how they should teach in college. Right. And the best college professors don't teach that way. Right. So don't just model your system after after something that you know doesn't work. Right. (laughs) And just because it has to be more difficult doesn't mean that it has to be more dull. (laughs) That's a big thing for me. The projects or the challenges or whatever the students are being asked to engage in just has to be more challenging. Yeah. That's all. And how about we, we, we stop going into some of those levels of classes? Well, welcome to Accelerated Such and Such. You're going to work your tail off this year. Uh, how about we train kids to not be afraid to work their tail off every class or every year or every day, but make it an enjoyable experience working our tail off? Because learning is difficult. It shouldn't be difficult and, and horrible at the same time. And I think there's a, there's a misconception for me. There's a misconception between, hmm, you use the word difficult. A lot of times I hear people say hard work. We need to teach you to do hard work. The learning process is often difficult. It's often difficult as a learner to understand something new that you haven't previously had. That is different than going outside and digging a ditch. And I think we get confused in that in lessons or the classroom all the time. We say, oh, geez, I need to make this hard, so I'm going to give them 20 worksheets or 200 pages to read instead of 100 pages or whatever. You get stuck in or bogged down with just volume rather than a challenging aspect of whatever it is you're doing. Right. And this concept doesn't have to just be for for education. I mean, there's so many analogies in my head that that explain the same thing. So let me let me give you an example that can relate to this. I used to use the the analogy with the the game Mousetrap. I've I've talked to you about this a couple different times about teaching how to play the game Mousetrap. But I'm going to switch it up a little bit today. Let's let's just say it's not Mousetrap. I want to teach you how to fix your lawnmower, your push mower if you will. So your push mower doesn't start and you need to mow your grass. So naturally you might just say, well, I'm just going to take it to the person who fixes those things. Okay, well, how did that person learn how to fix those things? Is that only something that that person knows how to do and will ever know how to do? Or is it something that you can learn how to do? And I'm going to tell you what, it's not going to be easy. You might need some tools to get it done. You might need to learn a couple things to get it done. Like you might need to learn that, For an engine to work, you need air, spark, and fuel. 
Well, I didn't know that. Well, now you do. I, I just taught you something. Right. Now, what were those three things? Well, I can recite them back to you, but will you know them tomorrow? Maybe, maybe we need to talk about it again tomorrow. And you can kind of see where this goes. You know, if you're going to fix your lawnmower, you might not want to rely all the time on somebody else to do it for you. Or even if, let's, let's bring back the game mousetrap. If I'm going to teach you how to fix your lawnmower, if I'm going to teach you how to play the game mousetrap, if I show you the game in a box and I, I say to you, I'm going to talk to you for 45 minutes about this game. You cannot touch the game. You cannot play the game. All you can do is listen to me talk about the game. Same thing with a lawnmower. I'm going to talk to you about internal combustion. I'm going to talk to you about the parts of this. You're going to have to label all the parts of the lawnmower. I'm going to give you a quiz on a worksheet on all the parts of the lawnmower. You're going to label those things because that's going to be important for us to fix this. That's just day one. Day two, tomorrow when we get into fixing the lawnmower, you see where this is going. Mm -hmm. No, I need to fix the lawnmower and I want to play the game. So let's get to that. And that's the problem. A lot of times <laughs> you never get past the worksheet labeling the parts of the lawnmower. Right. Start with the lawnmower and figure it out working backwards. Right. That's that's what makes great lessons. Start with the real world and then figure it out. That's how learning happens in the natural world. Right. School makes it artificial. And I, we're going to talk about like some positive uplifting topics and I don't want to sound too negative but we've seen those things happen in schools in our classrooms they happen in classrooms they just have to happen in more classrooms and that's what we want you know I use the example of uh, learning to ride a bike a lot of times mm -hmm. in classical learning in the official learning theory or how we would teach riding a bike in school we might read an article about Riding a bike, and then I might teach you the steps of riding a bike, and then I might teach you all the parts of a bike, and you might have to memorize those things. And then you take a test on all that information that I taught you and say, okay, you know how to ride a bike. No, you don't know how to ride a bike. You learn how to ride a bike by getting on the bike and riding it. Right. And then as you're riding the bike, some things might break on the bike, and you have to fix them, and you're going to learn about the, the chain or how that works through experiencing it. Mm -hmm. That's how you learn things in the natural world. For some reason, we make it artificial. All we have to do is make it as natural as possible, right. and it'll be awesome. We want it to be awesome. Yes. I think, geez, and it's, you know, even this conversation, as I, as I go backwards into the elementary world, and, and I think about planning these lessons and planning these experiences, and then I think about how we get bogged down into, well, that's not what this resource is, is telling us to do. And... And we had that conversation about how much do you rely on a resource to get that job done that you just explained, or how much do you rely on you as the teacher to get that job done? That's a very fine line to balance because, you know, you if, if you have a district initiative per se and you want to make an improvement across the board, you, you've got to have somewhere to start with. You've got to have a baseline to start with, or if maybe you're identifying a problem that previously existed You've got to have a baseline. And how do you get a baseline? We've all got to do the same thing for a little bit to try and narrow down where a problem exists. Mm -hmm. So then we have to teach something and then measure the reaction to it. Across the board, what was the reaction to this instruction? But I think we get caught up in what was the reaction to this instruction 
by an entire class. Nah, I don't want to. I don't want to look at it that way. I want to talk about it more individualistic. Who reacted to that instruction? What did they come in with, and what did they leave with? And then start doing that for a lot of individuals until we can make up a class, until we can start separating where the problem really exists among individuals. Is it a resource problem or is it a person problem? There's so much more than just the resource that goes into that. And there's, I guess, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of going off, off script here. There's no real script anyway, but I'm kind of going off the, the path. But was the problem that too many people were doing too many different things or was the problem that we were relying too much on a single resource to get a job done? So I think what I'm hearing you say is that you have to have good quality resources from which to teach. Yeah. That's essential. We could go out and find the best rated resources, but we still need one more component if we have the best resources. Right. And what we need are teachers who are able to tap into their expertise on the students in the classroom and what they need to best deliver the content from that resource in ways that are meaningful for the students. Right. They're, the individual teacher's creativity, expertise, knowledge to build those awesome experiences for kids with the resource as a tool. The resource is not the class. Right. The, the system that a school district has chosen to purchase to teach reading to students in elementary school is not the class. Right. When you were talking about, hey, I walk into this room and these are the things I do and I light up the room, I'm going to light that room on fire. Yes. I'm charged to teach this. I'm charged to teach kids how to read. This is the resource that I have, but I have to know I'm the most important component in the room and you are. Right. You've got to light the room on fire. You've got to sell it to the kids. They've got to believe in you and what you're teaching. That's the missing component in education that I feel like everyone is afraid to say. Teachers have to be great yes. every single day. They can't walk in and say, well, I'm going to teach this. It's the script, and I'm just going to do it, and we'll see what happens. You've got to be great. See, for all of our listeners, that's why, that's why it's Mike and Miles, because he brings me right back to what I wanted to say. <laughs> And I appreciate that. Thank you. That's exactly it, Miles. I mean, okay, if I've got this thing, let's say that I have to use this resource. Like you just said, I have to do this chapter and we have to learn this concept. Well, watch me do it. That's what you're saying. That's what I was trying to say is, oh, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it the best. Not saying like I'm going to do it better than everyone else. I'm going to do it the best I know how to do and watch this. Watch the reaction I get out of every single kid that watches me guide them through what we're about to do. They're going to have the time of their lives because I'm going to sell it to everyone and they're all going to buy it. And I won't take any excuses from anyone that will know that this kid isn't going to because of whatever reason. No, 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 no. They're all going to buy it. Yeah. Because I guarantee they're going to want to. Right. And I want to do a whole nother podcast at some point on what I what I term the heart of a teacher. Mm-hmm. But what you're talking about is that desire to move a group of kids from point A to point B where I need know they need to go. Mm-hmm. And the acknowledgement that the teacher's individual personality, drive, 
all of those components is central to that. And I think that's where teacher education programs fall short or investigations into best practices of teaching or whatever. You have about 3 million teachers in the United States. They're all different. They're all unique. They all have different backgrounds, knowledge, experiences, or whatever. Teach people to tap into whatever makes them them, teachers, Mm -hmm. and just let that fly in the room. Be yourself. Put on a performance. Get those kids to buy you. Yes. And then move them. Right. You don't, no one would be able to be Mike Ditzenberger in the classroom. You could give a list of like the top 10 things you did in your room. People can learn from those tools and adapt them, but they wouldn't be able to be you because you are you. Right. They wouldn't be able to be me because I'm me. But they can be them. They don't have to be a robot. They need to be them and right. sell them. Right. And the, the things that get in the way of that happening, then that takes a little bit extra of your focus. How do I overcome those barriers to reach that child, whatever those excuse, what not excuses, but whatever those reasons are that that kids aren't learning in your class or that do struggle with this material, be it behavior issues, be it background issues, focus on that to help that kid overcome. And we've we've talked about this. Does that kid get more in order to help that kid along? Maybe, maybe, and that's what they're going to get because right. it doesn't matter what they need. They're going to get what they need so that I know they're learning. Right. And there's another component of this, I think, in that what you said about your teaching experience, I think, needs to be said. Teachers have to have fun doing what they're doing. Yes. It's got to be fun. Yeah. And you might not even love the school where you're teaching. And there might you could list some things you don't like about your job. Anybody could. You control your classroom, and that space can be awesome all the time. It's yes. yours. Yeah. Those kids are given to you and you can just experience things with them and that's awesome mm-hmm. and that's one thing I miss sometimes I told you that just that opportunity to have a class of kids that you can interact with every day and you you set me straight on that and said no I've got a whole school that I can interact yeah. with every day and that's awesome it is but the 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 idea of fun and I think you know when you start to look at oh we gotta look at this data we gotta meet these standards or whatever people get that fun beat out of them mm-hmm. and then teachers walk in well I'm sorry we just have to do this today and I, well yeah we're gonna do this yeah but I'm gonna make it enjoyable because right. if we're not enjoying it it's going to suck yes and I think part of I think part of being a really good teacher and delivering intense lessons like that you gotta look at everything. What time of the day are you delivering that lesson? Because I hear teachers, and, and even I would notice it all the time, and you talk to teachers, they say, gosh, you know what? In the afternoon, the kids are beat. Bingo. In the afternoon, kids are beat. They, they're going to perform better in the morning because they're jazzed up. They had a full night's sleep. And what else? They haven't eaten lunch yet. So I remember in my high school days, sixth and seventh period, we had eight period days, sixth and seventh were the hardest classes in the entire world to teach those kids were worn out from whatever they did in the morning, and now they're digesting their lunch. If you think that my sixth period lesson was different than my first period lesson, you're right. They're entirely different. And there's no amount of jumping off desks and flying around a room that you're going to do in the afternoon that's going to equal what you did in the morning. So you've got to change your approach. You've got to buy. You got to get your buy-in in a different way. Same thing with little kids. Yeah, they're worn out in the afternoon. And so if we put math in the afternoon, 
Guess what math's going to have to look like? Entirely different than the way you delivered what you did in the morning. It's going to have to. Then you think about, how am I sending kids home? If you're sending kids home in the afternoon, what are they most likely going to say when they get home? Hey, how was your day today? Oh, you know, it was okay. Is that the last thing that they remembered? It might be. If the end of the day is the last thing kids remember and they're going home going, eh, it was okay, that tells you a lot as a teacher. So what does your afternoon have to look like? Maybe you need to save a little bit more energy for the afternoon to wow your crowd a little bit because that might be the last thing they remember. And I'm not going to get too researchy on you here, but I'm thinking about engagement as you're saying that. There's three types of engagement. There's emotional engagement. That's how kids feel about school, about their experiences there, and about their teachers. There's behavioral engagement. That's the level to which they comply whatever they're being asked to do. Follow the rules or learn, or I mean do tasks in class or whatever. And then there's cognitive engagement. That's the level to which they're really willing to try and grasp a concept or care about their learning. Mm -hmm. Research tells us that there is not behavioral engagement and there is not cognitive engagement without emotional engagement how people feel about their school, their teachers, their environment. Focus on that first. Focus on making people feel positive about where they are, about your classroom or about your school, and then they'll be behavioral engaged. And the most, the hardest form of engagement to get to is cognitive engagement, mm -hmm. but you have a chance to get there too. And I hear teachers say, or I've read a lot of research that says teachers are reluctant to do anything else other than just deliver the curriculum because there's not enough time, or they feel like they can't do those things. If you don't get kids loving being in your classroom first, you might as well just not even be there. Right. Focus on that. Like I said, when I talk to those kids, I want you to first love being in this class, mm -hmm. and then I want to give you things that you're going to use the rest of your life. In that order. Right. I want to make you feel good about being here. As a teacher, think about all the ways that you can do that. Whether it's joking around with them or smiling mm -hmm. or doing fun, funny things in class. I want you to enjoy being here. Right. And everything goes into that. The tone of your voice, the perkiness of the expressions on your face. Kids know exactly who you are today, tomorrow, and every single day. And it's, I guess in the back of my mind, I, I used to always think I never want to know, I don't, I never want kids to think that I'm in a particular mood. My appearance and my out, my output should always maintain the same. I don't want to change any piece of that because if I, the, the worst thing a kid could ever say to me is, oh, Mr. D, are you in a bad mood today? That to me is like a killer. Mm -hmm. That's an absolute killer. That means I should have just stayed at home today, called in sick and start again tomorrow. But you also know that kids are acutely aware of those things because sometimes as a teacher or administrator, whatever, you do have things that are going on in your life. You know, you had a death in your family or whatever, and it's just, but you know that kids are very perceptive of those things because they'll tell you right away. Mm -hmm. You know, Mr. D, you don't look like you're yourself today. Or did right. something happen? They know. Yes. And you need to be able to regulate your emotions and always be on for them. Yes. And there's a, there's a really interesting book out there called Kids Deserve It that mentions those things. That they deserve the best of you every day. 
And even if you're off your game a little bit, if you take inventory of that and, and can identify that, okay, this isn't my best game, maybe that's a conversation I need to have with my students and so they know that I'm meeting them in a certain way today that's unlike the way it was yesterday, but we're going to get through this together and we're all human beings and we can do this. Mm-hmm. So, And another thing I think I'd like to say about this is that you just mentioned it, but it's the idea of reflection and reflective practice as a teacher. And you were talking about, you know, delivering content or always judging the room and seeing how your reactions are or whatever. But I feel like teachers need to be very reflective at the end of each day or at the end of each lesson and always be thinking, how did that go? How did what I did impact the learning experience? You know, and if a teacher gives an assessment and the assessment, the performance isn't what they want, the first person to examine always is yourself. Right. How did what I did here make this unsuccessful? Right. A lot of times we look at it the other way. Oh, the students didn't care. They didn't, they, you know, had this going on or whatever. No, the responsibility is your own. So what as a teacher do you need to change or fix to make this better? Right. And another thing I thought of when you um, suggested the topic was in my class eventually, as I think I became a better teacher, I started doing things to connect with kids that were kind of outside of my personality. I'm not like super, super outgoing in my life, but I would do things like stupid little like dances that the kids were doing or like make myself more outgoing for them or say like weird words that they were saying in the time, like pop culture words or joke around with them like that just to make myself connected to them. That wasn't even who I was. Right. Like it wasn't who I was at all. And I would never do those things with adults, but I did them for kids because I wanted to connect to them. One of the many hats, if you will, that you put on, because that's, that's what needs to be done sometimes. And, and I still do it even as a principal, you know, when I'm walking around the school and I look at a kid and, and I see them like looking at me and I'll just say right up, like, that's kind of sus. And then, you know, you're going to get a reaction out of yeah. the kid for that. Like, you did not just say that. <laughs> say what? We talk about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that and makes, kids love that they stuff. They love that. They absolutely love it. But it's it's got to come out naturally and, and not like scripted or else again it's that it's that cell that personality that that makes it unique for them and and makes it want makes them want to come back every single day so i think you know one more component of that is to suggest that teachers in the reflective practice aspect of this i would suggest that you give surveys to your students think about it like this i got to the end of this school year i'm going to give you a survey how did you like my class Mm-hmm. What did you like about it? What didn't you like about it? Or the end of each nine weeks, what do you like about what I'm doing? Do you like me? Mm-hmm. Those things should be really important to you. That's probably the most dangerous thing you can consider doing as a teacher. <laughs> I'm not just going to put your grades down. I'm going to allow you to assess this course. They do it in college. You take those surveys all the time. Mm-hmm. They look at them and they base the professor's evaluations in part on those surveys I would suggest classroom teachers do that. Always be acutely aware of how your kids feel about you and your class. Yes. Do they enjoy it? Do they love it? Do they like you? Do they connect with you? And if they they don't, that's okay. What can you do differently or better to make those things happen? Exactly. 
I, I guess I guess for me, you know, I, I in another analogy, teaching lessons, amazing lessons, is is definitely a sales pitch, if you will. But the idea behind it is that everybody's going to want to buy this car. For me, of course, it's going to be cars, and I and I relate it to going to car lots. You know, if I'm getting my car serviced, how many cars do I see in that car lot, and how many times do I see car dealers behind a desk or doing whatever they're doing? But I'm a person on the lot, and there's cars on that lot. If we were to switch roles, you're buying a car. I don't care if you're here for an oil change or not. You're going to want to buy this car. Yeah. And I'm going to do everything in my power to show you everything that's awesome about all the cars that's on my lot. And for no other reason than at least to give you a good experience while you're waiting for your car's oil to be changed. You might not buy a car, but you're going to like everything about all these cars that's on my lot. You're going to love it. In fact, I might even take you for a ride in a few of these cars because it's not exclusive. I don't care what kind of cars they are. Let's go for a ride. I want you to learn something about these cars. Look at this. Look what this can do. That's teaching to me. You might not love the preterite tense in Spanish too because it's an intense past tense, but you're going to love something about this lesson. Let me tell you all about this, you know? We're going to do this, and we're going to do that, and I'm going to sell these things to you. And at the end of 10 minutes, you're going to talk and cheat amongst your friends and in another 10 minutes you're going to tell me something that you learned and I might have to go over it again but at the end of the day you're going to tell me something about today and you're going to know that I loved being there and talking to you about it even if I didn't even like it and at the very least they're going to love you first yes and they're going to come along and do what you want because of who you are yes and what you're doing for them and then they might learn about some of those Spanish concepts, yep. but not in reverse order. Not in reverse order. And at the end of the year or at the end of the semester or throughout the school year, we're going to build up some serious relationship capital because they're going to do for me because they know I'm going to do for them. Exactly. And at some point, you're going to ask them to do some hard things that they might not be willing to do. And then once you have that relationship capital, they will do it. Yes, they will. You know they'll run through a wall for you because of who you are and what you've done for them. I just thought of something as you were saying that, and I don't want to get too personal in the teaching experience, but you taught Spanish at the high school level, and some of those sections, or all of those sections, would have been elective courses. Yeah. So in some way, your job existing, or the students who you got in future years, was just a choice for them. So you had to sell people on your class to get them to sign up, to get them continuing to be interested in Spanish and not another foreign language or another elective. Right. I used to think of what I was doing the same way by the time I got to teach um, some video production courses and not language arts. It was just a straight elective. Yeah. And if I was going to move a student from 10th grade and have them in 11th grade, I needed to really sell them on what I was doing myself, my class, and make it fun and enjoyable. Yes. I needed to do that or else no one would sign up for my class. Right. If you're teaching third grade, you're just getting a group of third graders. They don't get a choice between the two or three teachers or whatever at a school. Right. Or language arts, like you're just getting the group of ninth graders sometimes or whatever. What if you wouldn't just get that group? Like, think of it that way. What would you do to get people beating down the door to get in your class? Right. And teach them. I See, that's so fascinating because I don't want to go too far out because this could be a whole other podcast. But 
I remember back in the day when even currently, even I'm sure there's still legislation out there that's like, well, we're going to offer vouchers for school choice. And I, as a principal, say, let them come. Let them come put school choice vouchers out there. Because I guarantee you, I'm going to want kids coming to my building, and the whole community is going to know that. Right. Let Put those vouchers out there. Right. I will stand up to the challenge right now. Right. Any day. Or say say you teach in a school district, and there's 10 elementary schools. And there's school choice within those 10 elementary schools. And kids can sign up to go to what? How would that change your perspective as an administrator or a school community or whatever to desire to make that school as awesome and enjoyable as possible because all of your jobs are dependent on the fact that kids want to come there. Right. And I'm saying it wouldn't change a whole lot of what I do now because that's how I... You're already trying to make it that way. You already want your customers, your students, your families to think that that experience is awesome. Yep. We just, I think, want everyone to look at it that way. Agreed. Make an awesome, enjoyable experience that benefits people. Yep. That's it. All right, we solved the problem. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think we, you know, we went, uh, we went some different directions. We started off like what makes awesome lessons, but I think that it's all in there. Like yeah. what makes awesome lessons is content because any classroom is going to teach a required content. What makes like the awesome classroom experience is the individual teacher, their willingness to be that individual and to sell out for their kids every day, every whatever day. it takes. Yeah, don't be don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to be a different person in your classroom that than what you are on the outside of your classroom. I mean, if it doesn't matter, you don't have to you don't have to be like me and 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 go all out and be that type of person because you can still be very reserved and the kids will know that you're there for them. You can be you can be yourself for them. And they will know it. And as long as you care for them and they know they're going to learn and that they're, they're going to build that capital with you, you don't have to be quirky and whimsical like I was. You can be yourself, but add in that element of I'm here for you. Right. Just no matter what, don't be afraid to do what your students need. Yeah. Whatever that might be. A lot of times that's going to be the opposite of what you think you're supposed to do. Don't be afraid to do that. Right. Just like that's that. it. That's it. All right. This will do it for this episode. We'll have some more topics. That'll be all. Thanks. All right. Yep. This has been the School is Out podcast with Mike and Miles. Continue the conversation and explore past and future episodes at schoolisout.org.